Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In today's episode, we have the second talk from James Jordan on what he calls the Enoch Factor. We do want you to know ahead of time that there are a few audio issues throughout this talk. Um, there's some pulsing going on with the with the vocals, and there are sections that are a bit muffled. But we thought the content was worth keeping in, and so we hope that you'll be patient with us uh, throughout the episode. And with that, we do hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the Enoch Factor. And the Enoch factor comes from Genesis chapter 4. And by Enoch, I don't mean the one who went up into heaven without dying after living a curious 365 years, but I mean the Enoch who was the son of Cain, and Enoch who was the city of Cain. The word of God comes to us as something that proceeds out of himself as a manifestation of his power, an articulation of his ideas, that is, the Word of God in the Bible, and as his Son, the only begotten Word of God. And similarly, the Word of man manifests itself in these three ways. Man extends himself out through what he does, building cities, through what he thinks, articulating a philosophy, and through having seed or children, uh, which carry on his ministry and his ideas out to the edges of the earth. These are the three ways in which man images the life of God. So man has a word in this sense, too, and man's culture is these things are bound up together uh, indissolubly in man's culture. Men are always building a city of some sort, using their sons and their offspring, uh, either literal or figurative offspring, either those that they have seduced to their philosophy or that they have actually brought into the world through natural generation, and accompanying these two activities of uh, filling the earth and subduing it is always naming whatever is going on. There's always the naming process, naming the animals, naming the city, and also naming the seed. And so the philosophy or intellectual word is always accompanying the word of action and the word of begetting or extending through humanity. Now we talked about that and we saw that that explains why over here in Genesis chapter 4, and why don't we read this again so that we begin to get it memorized, we read it so much, that when Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of wandering, a wanderer, not a pilgrim, a man with no destination, east of Eden, you'll remember uh, uh, Pastor Buckley's uh, lecture on the east side and what it tends to mean in the Bible. He dwelt in the land of wanderings east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife. Interesting language of word and concept used for physical connections here. And he conceived and gave birth to Enoch. So Cain's son is named Enoch. And then Cain built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So the two things that proceed from the man, his work and his son, are both given the same philosophical understanding. They're given the same name, the same appointment. The man names the city Enoch, he names his son Enoch. These two things are parallel. If we could take the time in the Bible, we'd always see the seed and land that go together. And the seed and land are what are redeemed. The blood of Christ uh, covers the land and the seed. And we could also talk about the tendency of Anabaptist theology to do justice neither to seed nor to land, to eschew the cultural mandate and to believe that God's promises do not extend to the child. But the Bible 
you see, always talks in both of these terms. Men are always building cities and they're always having sons and they're always appointing a philosophy for them. And this is the philosophy of Enoch. Now, the Enoch factor is this, and we see it right away in the passage. The Enoch factor is the problem that the pagans got there first and that they built the first city, and we come along afterwards. Let's look at it. Verse 18, Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took to himself two wives. <clears throat> the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And as for Zilla, she gave birth to Tubalcain. Take the two off and you've got Balcane or Vulcan. Vulcan, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcain was Naamah. Well, we can stop there. We have established the basic point and the basic problem. <clears throat> that the first creation and the first Adam and the offspring of the first Adam, the city of the first Adam, the first thing that came into the world is corrupt. And the first city built was a bad city. And those who attained preeminent expertise in all areas of life were pagans and used their expertise for the wrong things. Now then, later on in history, about 4,000 years later, in redemptive historical terms, but later on after uh, Cain has already got his city going, Seth is born years later, and Seth goes out, and when he goes to learn, and his descendants want to go to learn about livestock, what do you know? Jabal has already become the expert. Now, then there's the problem of how do Christians respond to the fact that the pagans have built the first civilization. We know by faith that Christianity is going to replace that civilization. <clears throat> that uh, post-millennialists, <clears throat> or even if you're not a post-mill, then you know that eventually, one way or another, that first civilization of the first Adam is going to be wiped off the earth, and the true civilization of Jerusalem, the second Adam, the sun and the seed, Christ in Jerusalem, are going to uh, the sun and the city, Christ in Jerusalem, is going to replace Enoch. It's going to be gone. But how is that going to happen? And how do we respond as we live in Enoch? And we notice that all the expertise is care is held by the wicked. How do we deal with the Enoch factor is the question. And I said Wednesday night, and this is about where we're going to take up, that there are four Christian responses. And just to summarize them quickly, they are the response of negation, the response of reaction, the response of separation, and fourth, the, resp the true response of objectivity. And let's quickly review what these responses are. First of all, we find that when Christians look at the civilization of Enoch, they have a response of negation. And the response of negation is the development of a whole philosophy which says the cultural mandate doesn't apply anymore. Since Adam didn't succeed in building the, turning the garden into Jerusalem, God no longer cares about that. God is going to let the pagans have the world and the Christians will be raptured out of it. They may be raptured out of it through a mystical experience, or they may be raptured out of it by Jesus coming back and rapturing them out of it. But one way or the other, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. You don't try to build another ship and get onto it. You don't try to repair the ship that you're on. You just let the ship sink and you wait and climb up on the mast and wait for Jesus to come and get you off of it. Now, this is a position, the official position of the Bible Presbyterian Church and of everything uh, from there on into fundamentalism. In other words, the Bible Presbyterian Church is sort of the edge of fundamentalism. They took an official doctrinal stance saying it's sinful to try to engage in a cultural mandate. My response is it is inevitable to engage in a cultural mandate. Everybody does it. You can't escape it. When your wife cooks a good cake instead of a bad one, she is engaged in a cultural mandate. Um, 
we won't talk about faking. But, you see, cultural activity is inescapable. When you dress like I do, you are engaged in a cultural activity. We won't comment on that either. But nonetheless, one way or another, for good or bad, for pretty or for ugly, everybody's doing cultural things, so it's inescapable. Plus, we could look at Genesis 9, verses 1 and 2, and see that God told Noah the same thing he told Adam after the fall. Get back to work, take dominion, name the world, have children. So the Baptist position, which essentially, in its, in its, uh, in its essence, says don't fool with the cultural mandate, and all of those who were tagging along with that viewpoint, such as the Bible Presbyterian Church, which is Carl McIntyre's church. Of course, we know McIntyre never engages in any cultural activity. You don't see him fighting communism or involved in anything like that, do you? So how can people live with these ideas? Beat me. I don't think the response of negation will work. We can't just negate the cultural mandate. So we have, secondly, the response of reaction. <clears throat> and the response of reaction says, avoid things that non-Christians do, especially where they're strong. Are the non-Christians really good at playing the organ, but they almost all happen to be homosexuals? Well, then you just better stay away from trying to learn the organ. After all, you don't want to sit on an organ bench next to a homosexual to learn how to play the organ. This has been the position in the church. One of the reformers, one of the preeminent reformers, Holdreich Zwingli, uh, in Zurich, felt that uh, the non-Christians had so much control of music, and music was so influential that we ought not to have any music in the church at all, not even any singing, not even a cappella singing. We just ought to speak the entire service. Uh, traditionally, you'll find, if you go back and read uh, 19th century Christian writers, even Reformed ones, they'll say that Christians ought never to read fictional literature. Christians ought never to go to the theater. Um, these are places where the pagans are strong, therefore Christians ought not to do them at all. This tends to be a response of reaction. It's a psychological type response. It's understandable. It's not, however, a good response. How do we reply? Well, I think we have to reply in seeing that when Israel came into existence, God said, look, you need to do these things. You need to have an agricultural economy. I want you to set up a temple and have a whole orchestra and have musicians. Now, the problem was that in Egypt, the Jews didn't do any of these things. They didn't have any time to learn how to play musical instruments, and they didn't know anything about agriculture. If you think about it, they knew zilch about agriculture. In the first place, the agriculture of Egypt was carried on by um, irrigation of the Nile River. It wasn't a rain-oriented agricultural system at all. The water didn't come out of clouds and water the earth according to seasons. The water came from flooding of the Nile. And when you watered it, you stood there with a little water wheel, and you moved it with your foot, the Bible says, and that made the water go into the irrigation channels. But the Jews didn't do much of that. Mostly they made brick. Other people did the agriculture. So when the Jews came out of Egypt, they knew nothing about agriculture. Where do you suppose they learned it when they got to Palestine? They had to learn it from the pagans. They didn't know anything about music, so where do you think they learned it? They learned it from Jubal, just like they learned agriculture from Jabal. When Solomon got around to building the temple, he had to use Hiram of Tyre. He had to go to Tubalcane to find out how to make certain things. God brought, in fact, when Israel was formed, he brought a mixed multitude along, and that mixed multitude knew how to do a lot of these things. God killed them off after they served their purpose because they didn't repent. Nonetheless, they had to learn them from the pagans. And so they weren't allowed the response of reaction. They were required to take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and learn from the pagans without being fearful of it. The response of reaction won't work. It's understandable, but it's just not allowed. Uh, it might be appropriate for some people at some time. 
uh, depending on how strong or weak they are, but we have to say that in a general rule, the responsive reaction is dangerous. The other thing about the responsive reaction is <coughs> if, we respond, if we simply react against the philosophy of Enoch, then we're still living in terms of it. It's like we don't want to do anything that Roman Catholics do. So if Roman is kneel, we're not going to kneel. If Roman is read the Bible, we're not going to read the Bible. Uh, so forth. Or we don't, we're not going to do anything that fundies do. If fundies do this, we're not going to do it. That's getting our theology not from the Bible, but by reaction against what other people do. And that's the other problem with the response of reaction. Uh, Zwingli would have done better to look at what the Bible says about music and not pay so much attention to what the humanists of the day were doing with music. Now, the third response to the Enoch factor is the response of separation. The response of separation is closely tied to the response of reaction, and it goes like this. We're going to have our own Christian culture, separate from the world. We're not going to learn anything from Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. Rather, we're going to reinvent the wheel. We don't want to go and learn from these people because they uh, might corrupt us if we got close to them. Uh, we don't want to have to go and sit on an organ bench next to a homosexual to learn to play the organ. We'll just get a book and learn on our own. Now, maybe that's what uh, some of us as individuals would rather do. I hope you don't think I'm picking on organists, but as a musician, I'm aware, as anybody in a music department in any university is, that there's an awful lot of people playing the organ today who are $3 bills. <laughs> now, that won't work either because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we start all over again. You know, that we start everything over again and don't pay any attention to the first civilization that was built by Enoch. Proverbs 13, verse 22 says, The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Okay? That's 22b. Proverbs 13, 22b. The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. In other words... The first civilization has actually gotten a lot of things together for us. They've learned how to smelt gold out. They've learned how to build musical instruments. They've come up with some pretty good melodies. So they've laid up all this wealth. Now, God is going to destroy them, but not until we've had a chance to pick off the good stuff, see? Similarly, the book of Job, this is all wisdom literature, and it's kind of appropriate for the subject because it takes wisdom to do all this stuff. Job 27 13 to 17 makes the same point. This is the portion of the wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword, and his, his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. No, they'll starve. His survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, but the just will wear it. Hey, you may prepare it, but the just will wear it. And the innocent will divide the silver. Now, there's nothing here about saying that they will lay it up and it'll all be wiped out, and then the righteous will come along later and completely separate, build a separate city with no connection to the first. That's not what's being said. And then, just to complete our survey of wisdom on this subject, we could look at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 26. Ecclesiastes 2, 26. For a person who is good in God's sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. What do the wicked do? They gather and collect. And then it's given to us. So what's the purpose, we might say, teleologically? What is the purpose of Enoch? Well, they, while the wicked, while the righteous are few in number and weak, 
they're out there gathering and collecting all the raw material which is going to be turned over to us. Now, the city of Enoch is not going to survive. It's not going to survive because God destroys it. It's not going to survive because it's made of men who are wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to survive because those men can't cooperate. They can't get along with one another. We don't really need to worry about them in as much as maybe we do. Perhaps their power is there for the moment, but over the long haul, Enoch cannot survive. And so it's doomed. Enoch is a collection of things and patches without coherence for this reason. Maybe I'll elaborate on this just a little bit. Why won't Enoch survive? Well, these are just some of the things that people in Enoch will do which shows they can't survive. They get together and agree to do something, then one of them pulls out and breaks the contract. Their yay is not yay. Uh, this city will be riddled with gossip. They won't be able to cooperate with one another. One hears this, another hears that. There's a confusion of tongues that go on. Enochites will rebel against authority. Enoch will be full of factions. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. But that's true in Enoch, even worse. Uh, so this illustrates the point, we could go on, that Enoch is basically a th collection of things and patches without coherence. Enoch is no threat. Enoch is going to fall to the gingham dog calico cat syndrome. If you're familiar with the gingham dog calico cat syndrome, they ate each other up. And Enoch won't be around because of that. So we don't need to worry about Enoch in that sense, and we don't need to have the response of separation and try to reinvent the wheel. We may boldly get involved. Now that brings us to the proper response, and that's what I'm calling the response of objectivity. The response of objectivity. We as Christians may freely get involved with the arts and sciences of Enoch without fear, and we may learn from Jabel, Jubal, and Tubalcain. We are able to weed out the bad and keep the good. That's something that Christians are indeed able to do. We are able to listen to Beethoven. We're able to recognize that there's a certain amount of violence that goes through the music of Beethoven. But we are able to sort out the good and the bad. We are able to listen to classical music as a whole and see increasingly as we grow in wisdom which parts of Jubal we want to keep and which parts we don't want to keep or any other kind of music, folk music or any other. It's something that we're able to do. We're not weak, we're strong. Now the objection to this that one hears is a denial. This is simply not possible. If you bed down with dogs, you come up with fleas. That's true. Unless you put flea spray on. And then you can bed down with dogs and you don't come up with fleas. You see, it's not necessarily the case that you come up with fleas if you bed down with dogs. The argument is that we as Christians are weak and they are strong. And they are stronger than we are in influence. So if we even expose ourselves to this stuff, if we expose ourselves to rock and roll music or something else, then we're just automatically going to be overwhelmed and killed by it. Exposure means death. Now, I think that this this is a common view in certain reform circles where an immature understanding of presuppositionalism is found. Presuppositionalism does not say that men can never assume a stance of neutrality or objectivity in any area of life. See, we're so used to saying nobody is ever neutral. Nobody is ever neutral. Okay? That's true when it comes to God. But as regards our involvement in life, certainly we may assume a stance of neutrality or objectivity. That's absolutely necessary. We have to be able to distance ourselves from our emotions and our feelings, and that's not that hard to do. We do it all the time, or I hope we, we do it. If we have any degree of self-consciousness at all, we do it. Men are certainly able to assume a stance of neutrality or objectivity. 
in life. The only place where they may not assume that stance is with relation to God, and that can't be done because God is the ultimate environment. You can never be neutral about God, either pro or anti-God. It's impossible to adopt a stance of neutrality regarding God. Nobody in the world ever sat down and said, hmm, I wonder if I'll believe in God or not, and to weigh the evidence and then made up his mind because he took a neutral stance. That's what Eve tried to do. Eve said, well, I don't know if I should eat this fruit or not, so I'll take a neutral position, I'll try it out and see. I'll be a good scientist, I'll have an empirical investigation into it. Well, but to adopt that stance was to sin. She sinned when she decided to make up her own mind instead of listening to what God's mind said. When it comes to God, neutrality is impossible, but when it comes to the cosmos, certainly an objective stance is possible. See, we are not the slaves of the cosmos or of society. We're the slaves of God. Can't be neutral to him, but we may be neutral to society and to the world. That's not to say it's always easy, but it is to say it's possible. Unfortunately, a kind of B.F. Skinner determinism creeps into the church. We argue against B.F. Skinner when we read Francis Schaeffer, but then we act like he's true. If we so much as set foot into a rock concert, well, it's just bound and determined to tear us down completely and totally, and nobody can do it no matter how uh, objective they try to be in the midst of the situation. Well, we have to say that that's not true. Now, I'm going to give some examples which I pulled out from random uh, things that come up and uh, I think are important. Let's take an example. Two men in the church, let's say it's this church, get into a big fight. And so they bring it to the elders. Now the elders decide they're going to judge the matter. But then the first man says, well, the way I see it is these elders are all good buddies with my opponent, so they can't be objective. And then Mr. B says, well, you know, the way I see it, uh, my opponent had all the elders over for dinner last night, so he can't be objective. Each one tries to disqualify the elders because they're friends of the other party or because they've already heard something, and so they can't be impartial. Well, in fact, if this is really the case, these men should not have been elders in the first place. Of course they can assume a stance of impartiality if they try. They They may not choose to. If they are elders in the providence of God, we have to at least credit their ability to assume an impartial stance. Now, you think about it in small-town Israel. Back when Israel was set up, they had these little small towns with two or three hundred people in them. Any case that would have come to the court, the elders would have known everybody. They would have had friendships with the people involved. The Bible doesn't say, well, if you happen to know somebody, if you're a friend with somebody, or if somebody took you out to dinner once, you may never sit as a judge over them. That argument won't hold. It won't wash. It's impossible. Men certainly may, <clears throat> certainly are able to and should adopt a stance of impartiality, and that's why the Bible has so many rules about you must be impartial when you come to court. Men may tend not to, but they are certainly able to. Let's take another example. I'm always a little bit wonder about people who say, well, you know, if I see a naked woman, just, ah, you know, golly, gee, can't you be adopt a neutral stance? It's not that hard. Is it possible to look at one without sin, without being dragged down into the gutter? Well, sure it is. It's just entirely a matter of whether you assume in your mind a stance of distance or objectivity from what you're looking at. Oh, naked woman, okay, let's go to something else. Or else uh, stare at the picture for a long time and allow all kinds of lustful thoughts to come on. It's a matter of your intent. And it's not difficult to take an objective stance. Let's take another one. Is there something, is it possible, morally possible, these are moral questions, is it morally possible for a physician to give a woman a physical checkup? 
to give a breast examination or a pelvic examination. It goes on all the time. We don't seem to make the assumption that every medical doctor that does that is engaged in some type of a wicked, lustful activity. Now, I know women who seem to be afraid of that, and they say, I'm not going to go to anything but a woman doctor. Well, if that's what they want, that's okay, but it's not really necessary. Because it's perfectly possible for a physician to adopt a neutral objective stance and go about his work. See? It isn't all that tough. Now, admittedly, I know guys who've gone into the medical profession, and the first time they had to do that, it was just really tough. But, of course, they were so tense and nervous, it wasn't a moral problem. It was a problem of embarrassment. But it's obviously possible, and happens every day, for people to assume an objective stance when they have to do things. We don't automatically disqualify the entire medical profession as immoral because they see naked women or because they have to give pelvic examinations. <laughs> is it morally possible for a Christian to go to an R-rated movie? Yes, it is. Depends on the Christian, depends on his motive, depends on the situation. We haven't talked about all these things. I didn't say whether it was wise in every situation for a man to go to an R-rated movie. We haven't discussed his motive. We haven't discussed his age, and age makes a difference. Maturity makes a difference. Marital situation makes a lot of difference. People who aren't married yet don't think it does, but it does. Makes a lot of difference. All we have said is it is possible to assume an objective stance and filter the intended erotic effect of a sex scene in a movie. It's possible to do that. It's possible to sit there and watch what's going on and say and be disgusted by it, or to say, okay, that's what's going on, and you filter it. You may have to learn to do that, but it's possible. It is morally possible to do that. If it's not morally possible to do that, we're in trouble because we can't deal with anything in the world. Because everything out there, every billboard, every automobile advertisement is beaming us with sexually suggestive material. You can't filter that. You're in trouble. We have to learn to filter it. It may not be easy. It may not be equally easy for everybody, but it can be done, see? So we can't make blanket statements about what one person may do and another person may not do. Now, all these are controversial things. I'm, maybe we'll talk more about some of the things we ought to keep in mind in some of these areas. I only bring them up to show that if you want to learn how to make movies, you've got to learn it from Jubal, Jabel, and Tubal Cain. And to do that, you may have to go to some movies, and those movies may not be the kind of things that you would make, but you may learn some techniques from them. We're not in the movie-making business here, or at least most of us aren't, but that is just one example of what is possible. It's simply possible. That's all we're saying. Let's take some cases historically. Take chemistry. Once upon a time, there was something called alchemy. Somebody had to go through the material of alchemy from a Christian and or rationalist standpoint in order to cull the true information out from the demonic information. Somebody had to go in and sort it out. They shouldn't have been afraid of it. Not everybody is skilled to do this. Not everybody is morally prepared to do this. People vary. But somebody had to do it, or else we'd still be dealing in alchemy. We'd still be calling in demons to help us do what alchemists do. Make the... Uh, pieces of metal which are in the womb of the earth move toward maturation and be born as gold. All that was thrown out, and we have chemistry. Astronomy. Astronomy was once linked up with astrology. It was a fearful thing to study the stars. Somebody went in, sorted out the data. I don't think they always sorted it out right, but they sorted out the data. They were able to do that without becoming demon-possessed in the process, without becoming astrologers in the process. Medicine. You go on the mission field. I gave this example before, but I'll put it on this tape too. Never know about these tapes. Uh, you go onto the mission field and somebody gets sick. 
And uh, you try to heal them and you just don't know what to do. And you use all of modern science and modern science doesn't seem to work. So then the witch doctor says, move aside, white man. And he dances all around and he shakes a bunch of stuff on him and he gives him a potion consisting of rat's blood and also some herbs and things. And he prays and he carries on and he cuts the guy in the arm and lets a little blood out and does a few other things. And sure enough, the guy gets well. Okay? Now, what you figure is it probably wasn't the rat's blood. And it probably wasn't all the dancing around, although that might have had a psychological impact. <clears throat> and it probably wasn't cutting his arm and letting a little blood come out. It was probably those herbs, see. But now, if you're totally afraid of talking to the witch doctor for fear a demon might leap out of his mouth and go into your soul, you won't talk to him and find out about the herbs. Somebody has to do that, see. You have to be able to do it, and we should be bold to do it, because we live on the other side of the cross, and the new covenant puts all the power in our hands. That doesn't mean we should be foolish and unwise, but it can be done. Biological science is today. Biological science today is so intimately interwoven with an evolutionary grid that it will take a long time to sort out what's true and false in biological science. Creation Research Society has just skimmed the surface of what's involved. But it can be done. It must be done. Again, reading evolutionary books is not going to make you an evolutionist unless you let yourself get suckered in. Now, maybe you shouldn't be the one to do it, but it can be done. Let's take some other examples. How about yoga? The way I look at it, the way I look at it, is that yoga is a technique for understanding your physical capacities. Now, God put man on the earth to become gradually more and more self-conscious about himself and more and more self-conscious about society and about the world. Now, we know, as Calvin says in Institutes, Book 1, Chapter 1, Section 1, that self-consciousness is tied to God-consciousness. Maybe you were one of those people that was saved later on in life, and you remember when you were saved, you began to feel more of a person than you'd ever felt before. It seemed like when you submitted to God, your own sense of uniqueness and personality and personal individuality was heightened rather than lessened. You know, people would think, well, if I submit to God, I'll become less of a person, but that's not true. Our true personhood is developed in our interface with God. But becoming more and more aware of ourselves and more and more self-determinate is not sinful. It's good. We are the image of God. God wants us to take dominion over the world and our bodies. Well, it seems, and I only say seems because I don't know much about this, but it seems that people who know a lot about yoga are able to control their bodies. They can control their heartbeat. They can control themselves. If they get sick, they seem to know things to do by self-control. Is that bad or is that good? Well, in and of itself, it's good. problem is, if you want to learn how to do it, you go to the yoga, the yogi, the yog, whatever he is. <laughs> he gives you some yogurt. <laughs> and then he tells you all this philosophy about emptying your mind and becoming one with Om and all this other stuff that you're supposed to do, see? Well, you can't go along with all that. And frankly, I don't know enough about it to where I would go and... Uh, <laughs> You know, I have real self-control of this chubby body of mine, you can tell. But assuming that there is value here, it can be filtered out. But somebody who knows what they're doing needs to do it. I mean, uh, the, the naive Christian who isn't assuming a very carefully an objective stance may go down to learn a little karate and may get corrupted by all the philosophy that's being spewed in about sitting there and meditating for two or three minutes before you do your exercises. On the other hand, there are plenty of Christians who go there and they work on scripture memory while everybody else is meditating and then they do their exercises. See, you can do it. And it's not all that hard. What is, what's important is not the difficulty of doing it, 
but the mindset with which you do it. See, the mindset of not being corrupted by an alien religion. Church has always done this. It has picked up some fleas along the way. But it's better to pick up a few fleas than to be judged as burying your talents. Chiropractic medicine is another one. Uh, the kind of medicine that we're used to has already been pretty much sorted out from witchcraft. But chiropractic medicine frequently isn't. There are chiropractors who are just sort of fixing your bones and nerves. And there are other ones when you go in, they've got these charts on the wall with these uh, Indian uh, lines of force all over the body, and they've got this whole philosophy that goes along with it. Uh, it needs to be sorted out. That's work left to be done. Now, I suppose that it's easier for us to see when we're talking about chemistry, astronomy, medicine, biological sciences, yoga, and chiropractic than it is when we talk about the arts, because the arts are less important, right? Or are they? But then again, that's the question. Getting involved in the arts is more controversial, because the arts are seen as less important. But that in itself is part of our modern worldview, and I don't think it's acceptable. Let's conclude this little section of the discussion. Now, I haven't tried to make any recommendations. Don't, I'm not saying go to see movies if you don't think you should, or go to see them for any particular reason. I'm not talking about anything except the possibility. I know movies are controversial with some of you. The real limitation of Enoch is reductionism. Enoch is always, the city of Enoch and its culture is always going to only take a few things. There's going to be an establishment view in the city of Enoch, and the establishment viewpoint will not take in all the data. The result is that the leftover data, which is not part of the establishment worldview, winds up in occultist systems of thought, or what we call fringe thought. We'll talk about fringe thought in a minute. And we as Christians have got to be able to side neither with the establishment nor with the fringe. So let's conclude this morning in the last 15 minutes by talking about occultism. Because if we don't accept the establishment view on this, that, or the other, say evolution, then possibly we're going to find uh, stuff that we agree with in fringe sources, but those fringe sources are occultistic. And Christians get even more worried about that. I think not always necessarily so. Hope we can get through this. Occultism and Enoch. Information which is not accepted by the current secular worldview always winds up in fringe systems. For instance, evidence of high civilization in the ancient world. There are people who talk about that. Rosicrucians, the ancient mystical order of the Rose Cross, those are Rosicrucians. In other groups, oh, they've got all kinds of information about great civilizations in the ancient world, worldwide travel, and all this kind of stuff. Because it's been known right along that there was all kinds of high civilizations in the ancient world. It wasn't forgotten, but because the establishment doesn't recognize those facts, those facts find their way into fringe systems. Evidence of telepathy. Somebody has an identical twin, and the identical twin's husband dies, okay? And the other girl wakes up in the middle of the night and is aware that her sister's husband has died. Is that demonic? Not necessarily. It doesn't fit, the establishment doesn't have any explanation for that. It doesn't square with modern atomistic empiricism. And so the information winds up out on the fringe. And so some kook writes about it, and he winds it up in an occultist system where spirits cause it to happen. See? Now that information, that little discrete bit of information, might be explained on other bases which would be acceptable to us, see? Which maybe we'll talk about at some point. But here's information which is not accepted by the current secular worldview because it's too narrow and it finds itself out in a fringe system. 
chiropractic medicine is another one. Evidence of long-standing political conspiracies is another. Conspiracy theories. The establishment doesn't take seriously any kind of conspiracy theory. So what happens to the evidence of long-standing political conspiracies? It winds up being articulated in fringe groups, which make too much out of it. And if you, this is interesting to me, and I, I know this could be corroborated by any number of people. You get on some right-wing mailing list, you know, and they've got a few books for sale that you want. They've got a book, they've got books on uh, the conspiracy, you see. Then you look on down, and there's some books about how if you eat uh, dirt, you never get sick. <laughs> and then there's some books about flying saucers. And you just go on down the list, every fringe thing, one fringe guy tends to get into all the other fringe, see, because he's learned to distrust the establishment. When he distrusts the establishment, he fringes out. And when he fringes out, he gets into all the other fringes, see? Now, this happens in Calvinistic churches because Calvinists are fringed out. See, we were all Arminians and Baptists once, weren't we? And that's the establishment. And then we found out the secret Gnostic truth of the five points, which no one else knows, see? And we became hardcore. And then we found out about postmillennialism and became even harder core. <laughs> and we found out about theonomy and we became ultra-hardcore. And then we found out about the conspiracy and some type of strange medical practice and this, that, and the other. Well, some of these things are probably sound, but each individual one needs to be checked out. But you will notice when I was at Reform Seminary, uh, it was just amazing how many people were into fringe practices, real fringy things like natural childbirth or even home birth. See, that's fringe. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's definitely fringe, see? <laughs> now, some things that are fringe, we wouldn't want. And some things that are fringe, we do want. Point is, you've got to be able to sort it out. Just taking an anti-establishment view won't help you either. The fringe mentality, so, is, is anti-establishment, and therefore the fringe mentality tends to be open to all kinds of fringe ideas. And since Christians are anti-establishment, or they should be, they tend to fall into fringe ideas. Now, I have down here, I've already mentioned a bunch, but here's one, anti-inoculation. Now, I've known people who wouldn't inoculate their children, and I've seen some very, very sad consequences in their lives. There again, maybe there's some shots that you don't want and some you do, but there is an anti-inoculation mood that floats around on the fringe. I know people who didn't have whooping cough inoculation, and their kids got whooping cough. You don't want your kids to have whooping cough, I can assure you. Well, perhaps inoculation is not the ideal way to treat disease, okay? We can grant that. But it is the one that God has placed within our reach in the 20th century. There aren't a lot of alternatives, see? If you ignore or reject inoculation as a means of preventing disease, and you don't have anything better to replace it with, then you run the danger of rejecting the means that God has given into our hands in our time. You see the point? God puts within our reach at our time a certain means to deal with a problem. We reject that one and we don't have anything better. Well, that's almost tantamount to despising the good gifts of God. It means that one needs to be careful. And I just picked this as one example. Medicine, man, religion. Bible ties health and healing largely with the church's ministry and the sacraments. Modern Christians think they can do without the church, and so they come up with one strange thing on health after another. Some of which are good, some of which are bad. They need to be careful. That's all. I'm not saying anything about any particular person or idea, just a principle 
of watching out that once you fringe out, and most of us are fringed out, that you don't just automatically accept things because they're on the fringe. Now, the modern establishment is a bastard child of Christianity. The faith has helped to purge the demonic elements in the Enoch worldview, but bastard humanism has taken over. Thus, the establishment is re-mythologized with humanism. Now, humanism is just as bad as occultism. Christians seem to be more fearful of occultism than of humanism, and we're shocked at pro-occultist movies more than we are at pro-humanist movies, for instance, to keep talking about movies. However, there isn't that much difference between the two. Humanism is a post-Christian form of apostasy. Occultism is basically a pre-Christian form of apostasy. It is true, however, that occultist systems being fringe are more open to demonic ideas than are the humanist systems. Occultism just means hidden. Not all occultist systems are infected with rampant demonic possession. Some of them are just weird systems of ideas that somebody happens to believe, like that Negroes are not human beings and Jews run the world. Uh, and everything's explained in terms of that. See, from our standpoint, occultist systems and establishment systems both involve truth mixed with error. To some extent, they're eating crumbs that fall from the master's table, and we can get those crumbs back. Now, the problem we have is fearfulness, and fearfulness is something that uh, we ought to take into consideration from two standpoints. And I want to close with this. Maybe we'll start with it again next time. The first thing about fearfulness is it's important to realize that there was a man who was given five talents, and there was a man who was given two, and there was a man who was given one. And the man who was fearful went out and buried his talent. He was afraid that he might misuse it, so he didn't do anything with it. And he's the one who got judged. See, we need to have enough confidence to believe that if we take out and work with our one, two, or five talents, that God will bless it one way or another. Maybe what we wind up working with is wood, hay, and stubble. But we ourselves are refined in the process of being burnt up by wood, hay, and stubble all around us. One way or another, God blesses those who try to use the talents he gives. He doesn't bless burying them. Fearfulness tends to lead to the burying of talent. Second observation on fearfulness is that in our society today, our many types of Christianity have good reason to fear exposure to the humanistic system. They don't have the ability to deal with it. They don't have the philosophy to deal with it. They are easily influenced, and probably it's better for them to adopt a position of reaction against what's going on. On the other hand, uh, that's really their problem, too, in that they have already in their Arminian system adopted a lot of it, and that's why they're so, so susceptible to it. If they hadn't adopted so much of it at the, at the outset, when they constructed their Arminian type of Christianity, they wouldn't be so susceptible to it uh, when they encounter it in the world. A third reason for fearfulness is a Skinnerian view of the power of environment. Uh, modern liberalism says that men are not shaped by genetics but by environment, and that bombards us on every side. Whereas we as Christians don't believe that, and we shouldn't. That by itself should not cause us to fear getting involved with Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal King. A fourth observation on fearfulness, and I made it just a moment ago, is it, it really denies the coming of the new covenant. Before Christ, you always find that the wicked sort of seem to overwhelm the righteous in the old covenant. And the righteous are told to stay away from and not involve themselves with the wicked culturally. There's a principle of isolation that does run through. And yet, after Christ, everything goes the other way. We've discussed before how under the old covenant, if something clean touched something unclean, the clean became unclean. Uncleanness spread. As Romans 5 says, death spread to all men. 
In the New Covenant, however, the woman who had the issue of blood comes up and touches Jesus, and it goes the other way. The cleansing power flows out. Out of our innermost parts come rivers of flowing water, according to John 7. Not just from Jesus, but from us. We can have a cleansing influence. And so, so far from hiding from the world, lest it influence us, we should get into the world confident that we will influence it. Now again, these are general canons. I'm not talking about specific things at specific points. Generally speaking, though, they're the ones that need to be afraid of us, not us of them. The final thing I'd like to say, and this is just to close off what I want to say about occultism, because we'll talk more about all these things next time and get more specific. We'll try to get more and more specific at some point, and then we'll just have to agree to disagree on some things, I'm sure. But the four, fifth observation I'd like to make on fearfulness is this, in regards to occultism. History is non-reversible. We can never return to a pre-Christian worldview despite attempts. In other words, there is never going to be a re-occultization of our society. This society is not going to return to an occultist, animist world system. It's just not going to happen because it can't happen. History is non-reversible. You say, look at Dungeons and Dragons out there. Aren't all these kids going to grow up and they're really going to believe a pre-Christian pagan occultist worldview? No, they're not. They're just going to play at it. Now, modern man can play at these things, and it's very, very dangerous to play with these things. But playing with them and really believing them are two different things. And history is non-reversible. That's one of our basic canons. Play can be dangerous. Nazism was an elaborate attempt to play at going back to a pre-Christian occultist worldview. Communism is humanistic. Nazism was occultistic. It was demonic. They were looking for the spear that pierced Christ's side so that they could move the stars around and make the stars right so they could win the war. Commies don't tend to do that. But the Nazis were doing that, you see. Nazism, but you see, more than anything else, Nazism was an elaborate game that was being played. And how long did Nazism last? Well, it didn't last like communism has. It just doesn't work. Very, very difficult to go back to power, blood, demonic type religion. Humanism is powerful, but occultism is not powerful. It sucks people into a dreamland of death, such as Dungeons and Dragons. The people who get into that, they simply get taken off the shelf, as far as history is concerned. They may be put on the shelf. They're no longer involved in what's going on. They're up here, and they're not relevant. It, it destroys them. They may draw other people in, and they too are destroyed. But culturally speaking, it tends to be merely a matter of play. And you just don't ever really get back to where it grips the whole society like it did. The cross broke it once and for all. When the cross comes into a society, when the cross goes to pango pango, and that's the way the people live, there comes a moment when the gospel shatters that worldview because it's very fragile. And once it's shattered, it never rebuilds. Because it really can't. It's gone. What happens is if Christianity doesn't move in, then seven worse demons move in. And those seven worse demons are humanism. Militant humanism. All right? See, not, uh, Nazism killed its thousands, but communism is tens of thousands. And so, in a sense, occultism is not what we need to worry about. We need to worry about humanism. Witchcraft is really there. Demons are really there. Demons, however, are masquerading as humanists today more than they are as occultists. 
I think that's another thing we need to keep in mind. History is irreversible, and that the occultist worldview systems are not going to take over. You know, people will toy with them and play with them, as they always had. In the 19th century, they were playing with them, especially in Germany, and so they got to where they took their place seriously, and they wound up with Nazism, but it didn't last. Humanism, on the other hand, is a different ballgame. Now, the bottom line is, there is a need to search out both establishment and fringe systems, accepting neither system, reworking the data from both, into a Christian worldview. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.